Good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. Maybe we have a group of people here that would be willing to do an impromptu special singing. If I see a bunch of hands in the next five seconds, we'll do that. If uh, I don't, I'd like to... I'd like to ask Troy to lead us here at the close of the service. Troy, if you could lead Church Hymnal 230. Uh, It's a familiar song, and I think we'll be able to sing that together. Um, Looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning, beginning at verse 1 and going to verse 17. This is... uh, I really, really struggled with this passage this week. Thank you for praying for me. Those of you who, who did, who thought about it, and prayed for preparation. Part of the problem for me in this passage is the, the depth of truth, the amount of truths that Paul covers in the first part of this chapter are tremendous, not only... Are there many truths, but also those truths have a lot of of substance, a lot of depth to them. And so how do you look at a passage of Scripture and cover a passage of Scripture that has this kind of depth and do uh, justice to it or uh, draw out what we need? And as Paul covers these truths, he applies them to himself and also to the Roman church. And so he's going to be making statements of truth about the Roman church and about himself. And just he's going to be moving through and some verses just have these like powerful three and four word comments that have so much in them that's that part of the structure of the New Testament and what we believe that you could spend a whole message on half of one verse. Um, and, and so how are we going to get through 17 verses this morning? Well, as I, as I studied, I started to realize that a lot of these truths that Paul states here to the Romans and to him, about himself and to the Romans, he actually covers later in the book in depth. And so I'm going to be trying this morning to draw out some of those truths and to point us to those truths and we can have an expectation that we're going to look at them more in depth as we move through the book because what Paul does after he gets to the after he kind of brings this to a conclusion at verse 17 then he starts into a very systematic look at how these truths or a reality in the life of the believer and in the world and in God's plan. And he wants to help his readers to understand how these truths are important. And I think that's part of the the key to the study for me as I go through this is how are these things important? How are they applicable to my life? How is the book of Romans the letter to the Romans, how is it applicable to my life? And I, I hope that we can draw from that this morning. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 17 to start with. Romans chapter 1, 
Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also." For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I'll just want to note to start with that the gospel is mentioned three times in, that pas- in this passage. Uh, the first time in verse 1, the gospel of, called the gospel of God. In verse 9, It's called the gospel of his son. And in verse 16, the gospel of Christ. All referring to the same thing. And so when we talk about, when when he talks about the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, that's, that's the same gospel. And we can see that by looking at verse 3. It says the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the gospel is about Jesus and whether Paul calls it the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, or the gospel of his son, he's referring to the same thing. Now looking at verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul starts this letter out with by putting Christ front and center. And by, by writing, by opening the letter this way, we think about this term servant. Well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you. Maybe I should speak for myself. We, it's, it's pretty easy to toss around this term servant and to think about it as being someone, you know, who serves other people or does what other people want them to do. But Paul's using it here more in the idea of a bond servant. And, and in that culture more like a slave, a person who has no right to do their own thing. They do what they're told to do because the master has said it's to be done. And and so Paul is saying right up front, he's saying, I'm writing this letter to you, but I'm writing as a servant. I'm writing as a person who has no right to say what I want to say. I'm writing as a person who is bringing to you Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm writing this letter as a servant, as a person who is presenting 
Christ. And so this, right up, right up front, he's, he's saying that Christ is front and center. And then he says, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Paul is the message bearer. The word apostle there is the same is, is a word that means sent one or someone who is sent, someone who's commissioned. So Paul is commissioned to take this news of the gospel and he is following that command, that commissioning of Christ. Separated unto the gospel of God. I want us to stop there for just a moment and think about the language of separation and the significance of the separation in the, of separation in the New Testament. Separation implies separation implies the two kingdoms, the two kingdom framework. In other words, separation implies that Paul was somewhere else, and he is now in a new place. He was separated from something that he was before. He's in a new position, in a new place. And this idea of the kingdom is a focal point of Jesus' teaching. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And in Jesus' teaching, He was often and continually bringing up the idea of separation. That there's an unrighteous way of living and then there's a righteous way of living. And there's a separation between those two. And we must choose or move towards the righteous way of living. And so this idea of Paul being separated into the gospel of God is, is an idea that is firmly grounded in Jesus' teaching. And it's part of what Paul is going to be presenting in this book. And then he's separated unto the gospel of God. And so there's a distinct place that he arrives, or that he is. I shouldn't say arrives, that's not the right terminology. But it's a distinct place that he is, that he exists. His life is in the gospel. He was separated unto that gospel. It has a destination. Separation, what I'm trying to point out is the separation is not just a difference, but a difference that is directed. A, drift, a difference that has a place. Then, in verses 2-4, through four, we get a description of what this gospel of God is. Separated into the gospel of God. Verse 2 tells us that it was promised by God in the Old Testament, which He had promised before by His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel of God had been promised in the Old Testament. Christianity is not a diversion from the Old Testament. It's a continuation of the Old Testament. Judaism is a diversion from Old Testament faith. I don't have time to, to talk much about that, but that's part of a discussion that I've had with Jewish people recently is what, what does it mean? What, what does the Old Testament faith look like and how does Christ fit into the Old Testament, Old Testament belief system? But Paul says, when he was standing before Felix in Acts 24, 14, 
But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, meaning the Jews, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. And so Paul's saying, as a Christian, he's saying that I believe all the things that were written in the law of the prophets. I'm serving the God of my forefathers, the same God who is the God of the Old Testament. Christianity is a continuation of the Old Testament. 2 Peter 2, sorry, 2 Peter 1, 19 tells us that prophecy is a sure authentication of the gospel. Or in other words, that the prophecies that were in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ authenticate His life and teachings as the coming of the Messiah. So prophecy is important and the connection with the Old Testament is important. The Gospel was an expectation of the Old Testament. Or in other words, Jesus' statement in Matthew 5 are statements about fulfillment or about completion. Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So what does it mean that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament? Well, there's two ways that that I think are ways to think about it that can be helpful. Two illustrations. One of them I shared here not long ago. It has to do with a house and a blueprint. I'm not going to spend much time on that. But the idea of a blueprint is that it has everything that a house has, but it doesn't provide anything that you need in a house. So it gives you all the detail about what the house should look like, but it doesn't provide you the home, the comfort, the protection from the elements, the place to spend time with family that a home actually provides. So the Old Testament was a blueprint uh, draw that illustration from Hebrews. Uh, Joe read from that this morning. Joe, what? Oh, Joe's not here. <laughs> I think it's Hebrews 3 or 4. One or the other. 3. Uh, where it talks about Moses was faithful in his house as a pattern of the things that were to come. The other one is placing an order. So you call someone or you go online and you place an order. And when you place that order, there is a series of things that have to happen for that order to arrive at your home. They have to box it up. It has to be shipped. The carrier has to take it to the different destinations. They have to um, scan it and release it to go out to your place. The driver has to come to your, to your place and to your door and drop off the package. But when that package, when that order is fulfilled, then the things that were necessary for that to come to fruition are no longer necessary. And so there's a completion, there's a fulfillment of the order. A fulfillment of the order means that some things are no longer necessary because it has been fulfilled. It's been completed. And so Christ completed aspects of the Old Testament that are no longer necessary because what we're looking for has come. What the Old Testament was looking for, what it was pointing to, has come. It has been fulfilled. And all this is important because Paul doesn't just dispense with the Old Testament in this book. He actually continues to look at the Old Testament and to point to the law and to point to things in the law and prophecies that were made 
and shows how that those mesh together and how the fulfillment of Christ brings about what he was talking about where he says, I believe all things that are written in the law of the prophets and I serve God according to my, um, serve the God of my, my fathers. In discussion with the Jews, Jesus points out the very same thing that Paul's making here. He says in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so he was he's saying that the Old Testament, if you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, you will find me there. They testify of me. They tell you that I'm coming. So the Old Testament prophecies expected the coming of the gospel. Verse 3, the gospel is about Jesus. I mentioned this in the overview quite a bit. But this needs to remain central as we think about the how we understand this book and how we understand both the Old and the New Testament. Jesus is central. Our theology needs to have Jesus at the center. The way that we think and understand God needs to have Jesus at the center. And the way we understand the Scriptures needs to have Jesus at the center. Concerning the Gospel is concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. We have quite a bit in that little His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have Son of God there. We have Savior there, Jesus. We have anointed Messiah in Christ, and we have Lord of believers. So in that, in that title that Paul gives him there, we have the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum of all those things, what they, what they are. Which was made the seed of David according to the flesh. There's two things here that I want to pick up on. The first one is that the Messiah was to be of the lineage of David. How could he be both the son of David and the son of God? And I've heard this question come to me from Jewish people who want to refute Jesus as the Messiah. But they don't realize that this is also a problem for themselves because the Old Testament says that Jesus is going to be the Messiah and that he's going to be born of a virgin. So if he's going to be the son of David in the sense that his father will be David, then how can he be born of a virgin? And so Paul is saying that Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus' body came from the line of David. Mary was of the line of David. Joseph was of the line of David. But God was his father. Jesus put this to the Jews by quoting from Psalms and then asked, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they couldn't answer him because they couldn't grasp, they couldn't comprehend what God was going to do to fulfill all these prophecies. But this, then the second thing is this idea of according to the flesh. So Jesus' physical body was came through the lineage of David and Jesus and the Jews, and I think this is important, 
an important point. The Jews accused Jesus or insinuated that Jesus was born of fornication, but they never questioned whether Joseph and Mary were of the line of David. That was never that never came into question in the New Testament. And so it was important for the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus be born according that Jesus be born to that line of David to fulfill that test that prophecy and to, to mesh him as Messiah with the Old Testament scriptures. But the greater thing in that is that this term flesh refers to his physical existence, his physical presence. The human side of Jesus, if I can say it that way, came from the line of David. The physical body came from the line of David. And then verse 4 talks about something else. Who was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. So, His divine life, the life that He was within, who He was within, was declared by the resurrection. So the proof that Paul points to for the divine nature of Christ was in the resurrection. The life, Him coming back from the dead. All of David's descendants before that had died and underwent decay. Had died and decayed. Their bodies had deteriorated, decomposed. Acts 13, 33-37. I'm not going to read it. You can look it up sometime if you want to. And that was in an argument to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Because His body didn't undergo decay. In the resurrection was the proof of His divine life. That is an important point for us later in the book. When we get to 6, 7, and 8, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. Divine life is accompanied by power and the spirit of holiness. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So when we see divine life, we also see power and holiness. Verse 5. So that's what, the, that's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is concerning. Jesus Christ, His Son. And then verse 5. By whom, by Christ, we have received grace and apostleship. So by Him, by this gospel, we have received grace. So not only is the gospel about Him, but the what the gospel does for us is because of Him and by Him. It's by Him that we receive what we need to live out the gospel. And it's only by Him. Grace is favor and divine influence. It's a broad term that encompasses the goodness of God to us. 
the things that God has given to us. We have received grace. And apostleship is sending or commission. Purpose. Given something to do. Given responsibility. Given a part in the work of God. And then verse 6, so Paul is applying that to himself. And in verse 6 he says, Among whom are ye also the call? Making it clear that it's not just Paul himself, but all believers who receive these things from God. Calling again, indicating separation from former life into the gospel. So ye also, you believers here, are entered into the gospel. Called and entered into the gospel. Joe mentioned partakers of the heavenly calling. Same idea there. Verse 7 says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both identity and position in reference to who they are as Christian people. Beloved of God. Believers are loved by God. This is God speaking. And so God is saying that those who believe in Him are loved by Him. They're beloved. That's the way He views them. That's the way He sees them. You hold a special place as a believer in the heart of God. Called to be saints. All believers are saints. You believe that? Our word in focus today is saint. The word saint in the New Testament is used for a Greek word, hagios, which means most holy thing or a saint. Now this surprised me, but in the King James, it's used 200 and some times. This Greek word is used 200 and some times. But 161 of those times it's used as holy. So there's a lot of there's a lot of the aspect of holiness in this word. It's very much the idea that a saint is holy. Like there's no differentiation between those two things. It's only used 61 times as saint. In every occurrence of saint in the New Testament is this word. So primarily, to be a saint means to be holy. And again, we're talking about how God views you. Those who believe, those who become partakers of the gospel, God looks at as holy. That's how He sees them. And the other interesting thing was that hardly any of those times that this word is, is used as saint, is it used as a singular word. It's pretty much always talking about a group of people, like it is here, called to be saints, like a group of people. It's used one time singular, singularly, I believe in Philippians, 
And there it's talking about greeting every saint. And so it's talking about the group again. I don't know what the significance to that is, but um, I think one of the things, well, maybe I should just maybe I should just add this to it. It doesn't talk about it in the same sense of it never uses it in the sense of a single individual who is a higher level of holiness than other people. Other other believers. For instance, a St. Peter type um, presentation where there's believers and then there's St. Peter. It uses it, always uses it in reference to the group of the people of God is holy. The group of the people of God is saints. Now, was Peter a saint? Yes, Peter was a saint. But it's not used to specify someone as, as a higher level of spirituality than other believers. There's one more significance that I want to draw out here. And that is the fact that the New Testament does not call Christians sinners as in sinfulness by nature. It refers to Christians as saints. It refers to believers as saints. And so I'm going to use a popular phrase that I've heard. I'm going to make a little distinction. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You've probably heard that before. Maybe you're like me and you've... I think I've said it before. Okay? But the issue there is that you're identifying yourself in a way that God doesn't identify you as a believer. Now, I was a sinner who has been saved by grace. But according to God, I'm now a saint as a believer and follower of Him. And so, if that's how God thinks about me, then that's also how I should think about myself. Now, you might say, well, why does that matter? Well, how we think about ourselves matters a lot. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Moving on in verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So if God is our Father, then we are His children. And Jesus instructed His followers to pray, and more times than this, as if God were their Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. Familiar words. Affirmation of position and identity is critical to healthy relationships. That's why it matters how you think about yourself. Because how you think about yourself in relation to God is going to impact how you interact with Him. And God wants you to be affirmed as a believer. He doesn't want you to be falsely affirmed. So you need to take what He says seriously. But He wants you to be affirmed as His child. And this book of Romans helped me to understand how God could say these glowing things about me. And I hope that we can move more into that later. Okay, verses 8 through 13, Paul then 
affirms. He affirms their believers' relationship with God, but in 8 through 13, he affirms his relationship with the Romans. And we can learn a lot about interpersonal relationships, working with interpersonal relationships, if you observe the way that Paul relates with other believers. He does an amazing job of relating in a way that is encouraging, uplifting, and yet also brings in areas where they need to grow. In verse 8, he acknowledges the validity of their faith. In verse 9, he lets them know that he remembers them often. In verse 10, he lets them know that he desires to spend time with them. In verse 11, he wants to share something beneficial with them. But he also recognizes in verse 12 that they have something to give him as well. Verse 13, he wanted to come to them, but to this point, at this point, he had not been allowed. And so he's expressing to them that I appreciate you. I want to come spend time with you. But unfortunately, I haven't been able to yet. And I want to communicate with you. I want to learn from you and I want you to learn from me. And then at the end of verse 13, he says that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. And Paul wanted them to know that in writing this letter to them, he was, he was striving to fulfill the purpose that God had given him. So we're shifting just a little bit now. and He's saying that here's my relationship with you and in my relationship with you, my desire is to fulfill the purpose that God has given me towards you and in my life. Note the phrase in verse 9, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of His Son. I think that is critical to us understanding the motivation that Paul had. Paul's motivation in writing this letter and in his relationships was a motivation that came from his spirit. It wasn't because he was doing this because he had to. He was doing this because it was something within him that wanted to fulfill the purpose of God. And he wanted to serve God out of that spirit. He wanted to serve God and to fulfill what God had given him to do. Spirit level service. Verse 15, he kind of reiterates that or kind of brings that to a conclusion. says, so as much as in me is, I am ready. So you get this idea that everything with everything that's inside of me, I am ready to do this. I want to get in there and I want to help you and I want to fulfill this purpose that God has for me. And I don't know about you, but that challenges me. Is there something within you that is, that is driving you and pushing you towards fulfilling the purpose of God? It's like you're, you're looking for that opportunity. You're looking for that way that you can better fulfill the purpose that God has for you. And part of that was, in verse 15, preaching the gospel at Rome. And what was, what was there in Paul's life? And I think we need to catch something in verse 14, and that is his debt. Paul said, I have a debt. 
I recognize a debt in my life. And he saw the purpose that God had given him as a debt that he owed because of the gracious, amazing thing that God had done. And this thing of debt comes back up several times in the book of Romans. And it's interesting how it how it shapes itself. In other words, in relation to who, who owes and who doesn't owe. And what do we owe? And he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You see, shame is a spirit motivator. And to be not ashamed is also a spirit motivator. It's an inner motivation. When we are to, to say, I am not ashamed, Paul is saying, I am fully ready to expose what I believe about the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm fully ready to, to let this out, to, to give this to other people. For I'm not ashamed. I'm ready for it to be revealed. And here's why. Because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Is that what you believe about the gospel? Are you not ashamed about the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes? And so you want it to go out there. You want people to find out about it. But yet there's a deeper motivation and it's in the next verse. For it is the righteousness of God for in it is the righteousness of God revealed. I want it to go out there because it reveals who God is. Because you see, the gospel is not man-centered. It's God-centered. And the deepest sense of motivation for the true believer is that God would be revealed through my life and through what He has done in me, that God would be revealed. And so the gospel reveals who God is, His goodness, His justice, His mercy. And when the gospel is proclaimed, it lifts up and reveals God to the world. And when God is revealed, then men believe. And when men believe, then salvation happens. And then grace is received for obedience of the faith. Verse 5. And then God is revealed to all nations. In other words, that progressive ongoing movement. When God is revealed, it starts a progressive ongoing movement of salvation and grace distributed that spreads the revelation of God. And that's what God wants to happen with the gospel. He wants to be revealed. I want to make a practice, some practical application to this. Do you as a believer want to reveal God? And I think there's two things that we need to think about in relation to that, and maybe it's just because it's what I need to think about. The first one is the want to. So do we have the motivation that Paul shows in his relationship with the Romans in, in his service of the gospel who I serve in my spirit and the gospel of His Son, is there something inside of us that is 
rejuvenating and energizing us to fulfill the purpose that God has for us. Something that is pushing us. Something that is is taking us beyond where we're comfortable and where it's easy. Do we have the want to, the same kind of want to that Paul had? And the reason why I think this, this inner spiritual motivation is so important is because that if we're doing it for other reasons, then we're doing it for legal reasons. We're doing it because we want to make ourselves right with God somehow by this stuff that we're doing. And we can't. We can't make ourselves right with God by the things we're doing. We're only right with God when the life of God within us is making us alive and motivated and doing things to fulfill the purpose because of Him in me, because of Him working in me. So do we have that want to? And the second thing is, do we understand the how of it? Do you understand how God is revealed? Do you and I understand that it's not how loud we shout about Jesus that's going to make a difference. It's going to be how our our lives are empowered and holy. That's what's really going to reveal God. It's not how much noise we make. It's not how many different places we go. It's about grace activating in our lives the obedience of the faith so that we live out what God wants us to live out so that we fulfill the purpose that He has for us. And that is the how God is revealed. Because when your lives are empowered by God, people look at that divine life and they say, resurrection. I want to see that. I want to know that for myself. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the Old Testament faith looking forward to Christ, the expectation of Christ in the Old Testament, the living according to the commands of God, looking forward by faith to the expectation of salvation, and the New Testament faith now established, looking back at what Christ has done in faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just live by faith in the Old Testament. The just live by faith in the New Testament. So may we live by faith. Let's have a song.